Those are good, aren't they? Well, I want to um, offer uh, my encouragement to what Shelley said and uh, just encourage you to do two things that are really important to us around here. And one, most importantly, is uh, get connected to a life group. I mean, if you want to really uh, feel like you're a part of things here and that you're connected at Crosspoint, uh, then being part of a life group. And so go out and sign up for that. And uh, there are a number of ways for you to also connect through serving. And uh, we'd love to invite you to, to do that. God is up to some really cool stuff around here. And uh, so we'd love it if you'd uh, connect and be part of that. Well, um, I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 21. That's where we're going to study today. Or if you're uh, following along on our Version live event, uh, our public internet is up now. So in addition to your smartphone, on your uh, tablet and other devices, um, you can also follow along on that at live event. And the text is there as well as some poll questions and ways that you can actually submit questions back to me about what I'm talking about today, all kinds of interactive things. And so if you want to follow along in that, I invite you to do that as well. We're, uh, we've been uh, talking about marriage, and so there's also a book I want to recommend to you. Um, I've been uh, reading in preparation for this, uh, a new book that I discovered. Uh, it's called The Meaning of Marriage. And so if you want to jot that title down somewhere, uh, the author is Timothy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. And uh, I think this is an, uh, such a good book. I mean, it, it has risen to the top of my list of marriage books. Uh, in fact, it's so good that I've been thinking as I finished up reading that, that uh as uh, my boys are getting closer to the age where marriage could be somewhere closer in the future, that uh, there, this is one of two books that I want them to read before they get uh, married. So I encourage you to read that. I know you're wondering what's the other book I want them to read. It's a book about sex that they'll read about two days before they get married uh, called uh, Sheet Music. So uh, if, you, if, you want to, if you're already married, that would also be a great read. So... Uh, uh, last week I told you about the husband store. If you weren't here, you know, there's a store where women can go to shop for a husband and uh, you go from floor to floor investigating the husband that you want to uh, marry. And, uh, you know, as you go up the floors, you can't go backwards. Well, I, I learned that there's also a wife store. Same kind of principle. Uh, you go to the store, you can shop for your wife uh, from various floors. Uh, same rule applies as you move up the floors, you can't come back down. So uh, you, you go into the wife's store. My understanding is that there's a sign on the first floor that simply says, all the women on this floor love sex. And, you know, for any guy, they thinking that's pretty good, but I wonder if I can do any better than that even. So it gets on the elevator, it goes to the second floor, and on the second floor there is a sign that says, these women love sex and have money. Now, I understand there are other floors, third, fourth, fifth, sixth floor, but I don't have any idea what those signs say because no man has ever gone to any of those floors. Well, if you remember from last week, the Bible says that marriage is a profound mystery. And for any of us who have been married for any period of time, we would readily agree with that. It's true, isn't it? It, it is a mystery at times. And so we're exploring the lives of four couples and their marriages in the Old Testament to see what lessons that we can learn to help us navigate through the profound mystery of marriage. And today, we're going to look at a couple that probably has the worst marriage in all of the Bible. And uh, it, uh, honestly, if you came here today feeling like your relationship isn't so good, I think there's a good chance by the time we're looking, done looking at King Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel, you may actually feel pretty good about your situation. So let me give you a little background uh, about their story. Uh, king Ahab was the seventh king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, he reigned uh, from 875 to 855 BC. Now he was he was a very strong military and political leader. 
But as is often the case for some guys who are a real go-getter in one area, they can tend to, at times, to be passive in another area, and often where they become passive is at home. And that is so true for Ahab. In fact, I think Ahab and Jezebel represent a rather common problem that a lot of marriages struggle with. They represent a man and a woman who did not understand their God-given roles in marriage. And uh, Ahab is the passive husband, Jezebel is the controlling wife. So I want us to look at their story, and from their story, I think there are some lessons that we can learn, some things that we don't want to do in our marriages. So 1 Kings chapter 21, let's start with verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, this vineyard, it's been in my family a long period of time, and I'm not not selling it. It's just not for sale. Verse 4, So Ahab went home. Sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed, sulking and refusing to eat. Now, I mean, let's just be honest here about Ahab at this point, okay? I mean, this dude is a wimp. He's a sissy girl. Here he is in this real estate transaction, and because his offer is refused, rather than giving a a counteroffer, he, he takes his ball, and he goes home, and he sulks. And you know what? Sometimes guys have a tendency that way, don't we? We have a tendency that if we think that we can't win, that we can't be successful at something, then we don't want to play at all. And we'll just take our ball, and we'll go home. And unfortunately, it happens in marriage sometimes. A guy thinks that he just can't measure up. He thinks, I'll never be good enough. I can never be like her father. I I can never please her because every time I try to please her, she tells me that I don't. And at some point, he finally just gets to the point that he says, you know what, I'm I'm just going to take my ball. I'm going to go home. And like Ahab, maybe not literally, but he goes home and he gets under the covers and he sulks because he can't have his way. Now, here comes here comes Jezebel's response, and it's just as classic as Abraham, Ahab. Verse 5, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so solemn? Why won't you eat? Now, I don't know if she's sympathetic at this point or it's sarcastic from the very beginning. Verse 6, he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in, his place, in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She says, basically, you know what? If you're not going to do it, get out of the way and let somebody do it who will get it done. She, She says, you're not strong enough to do it? Then I'll take care of it. You know what, ladies, you need to understand something that I think is true about all men, if and if not all men, most men. 
there is within inside all of us as men a place or some places where we feel weak and vulnerable. And the stronger we often try to appear outwardly, the more often we feel a little bit weak and vulnerable on the inside. And you, you as a wife, you, you have the power to make a weak man a stronger man of God. And that's what, that's what a godly woman does. But a controlling woman has the power to make a weak man weaker by the way she treats her husband. And that is exactly what Jezebel does to Ahab. And she does it specifically by two different actions in her life. The first way that she makes Ahab, who is a weak man, she makes him weaker by the way that she uses her words to belittle her husband. Look again at the first part of verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. There is sarcasm dripping all over her words there. Basically, is she is saying, You don't and you won't. Or wives today, may, you know, it comes out more as, You can't and I wish and you never and you won't and on and on the list goes. And again, ladies, you need to understand before you ever speak to your husband that your words are either building him up or they're tearing him down. What you say about your husband, what you say to your husband is either building him up or tearing him down. He is becoming what you speak about him. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death. And the controlling wife often uses her words to tear down her husband over and over again. And you know what? It's deadly. It's deadly for him, and it's deadly for the marriage. And when I have conversations with couples that I counsel once in a while, you know, I, I, I hear them come in, and often the wife comes in with her laundry list of things. These are all the things that my husband won't do. These are the things that he doesn't do. These are the things that I wish he was. I was reading this week another pastor who talked about a counseling situation that he was in, and the, the wife came in, and she had that same kind of list. And amongst her list was, I, I wish he'd be more of a spiritual leader in our family. And so the pastor thought, well, that's where we'll start. We'll just start with that one. And so he talked to the husband for a while, and he said to him, just lead, lead your family in prayer. And the husband said, I don't. I don't know how. I don't know what words to say. It comes out funny and awkward. I just can't do it. They talked some more, and finally the pastor convinced him, you know, if you would, just a couple simple sentences, start there. And so the husband went home, and he, and he tried it awkwardly and timidly. He prayed these couple of sentences. And when, when the, he was finished, you know how the wife responded? She said, what kind of prayer was that? That's terrible. That's not a prayer. God's not going to answer that. When they came back into the pastor's office a week or so later, and they recounted the story, the pastor said, my heart just sunk because I knew where this was headed. I knew what was going to happen. Eventually, that guy was going to get to the point that he was just going to take his ball and he's going to go home. He's going to give up. Your words have the power to make him weaker or stronger, depending on how you use them. Here's the other thing that Jezebel did. Jezebel, at some point, just simply takes over. Listen to the last part of verse 7. She says, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. In other words, you're not able to do it. You're not, you're not going to follow through. So I'll do it. Think about traveling in a car. In a car, there, there's one seat that is the seat of responsibility, 
And there's another seat that's pretty much the carefree seat, right? Uh, which one's the seat of responsibility? The driver, yeah. Th- somebody in first service said the passenger. <laughs> and I told that person I'm not ever riding in the car with them. Uh, yeah, it's the driver. He, he's responsible. The, the, the driver, he or she, has to really pay attention. You know, you've got to monitor what's going on around you. You've got to pay attention to your speed. It's a seat of responsibility and great attention. But the person that's in the passenger seat, yeah, they can play with the radio. They can sip their drink, lay back, chill, relax, look out the window. It's pretty carefree. Wives, if you are always the controlling one, if you're the one doing all of the driving in the family, eventually you know what you do? You condition your husband that he can just play with the radio and sit back and chill and relax in the passenger seat. Now, there's something we need to acknowledge here. We we need to acknowledge this and catch this, okay? Because I don't want any of you walking away saying, boy, he's so out of touch, you know, doesn't he realize? Listen, I acknowledge, we all need to acknowledge, that there are unfortunately some men who simply won't do anything. And if the family wants to eat or anything is going to get done, unfortunately, the wife has to act. But I'm telling you, that is the, that's the minority of cases, and, and it's so sad. And I feel sorry for those women. And they have no choice but to jump in and to do it. But in the vast majority of cases, it comes down to the reality that she won't let him. She's just so controlling. She's conditioned him that I'll just, I'll just relax and sit in the passenger seat and let her do it because she's never going to be happy anyway. Let me give you some some practical examples. Now, these are just small snapshots, and, you know, this happening one time doesn't mean your whole marriage is like this. But let me give you some snapshots of the ways this sometimes get lived out, lived out. For instance, if the wife, you know, asks the husband to go dress the kids, and he goes in and he, he dresses, the, you know, to dress them, and he dresses them, and she says maybe comb their hair, and he does that. But after he's dressed them or combed their hair, and they come, the children come back out, and they don't match, and the wife says, that's terrible. They don't match. They can't go out like that. Didn't you comb their hair? Hey, you know what? Once in a while, that's okay. But if that's all the husband ever hears, you know what? Eventually, he's going to say, hey, I can't do it right. So why try? She can just do it. Or when it comes to some housework, you know, if he tries to vacuum the living room and he doesn't get everything, you know, all the lines just perfect. And you come in and say, don't anybody ever teach you how to vacuum? You know, I like the vacuum. I I like to get all those lines. I just think I'm like, you know, painting a football field, you know, and it's okay. But you know what? If your wife's always telling you, you can't do it, you know what eventually he's going to say? I'll take my ball and go home. Or you ask him to put the dishes in the dishwasher. He he stacks them in there, and you come along every time and say, no, that's not the right way. Put them this way. Eventually he says, I'm not going to do it. Or when it comes to disciplining your children, much more serious issue. And he, he, you want him, you long for him to take his role in leading your children, and he tries to discipline them, and every time, every time, you're telling him, no, that's, that's not the right way to do it. You didn't say the right things. You didn't respond correctly. Eventually, he's going to just take his ball and go home. He's going to give up. Because he thinks, I'll, I'll never win. I don't know much about boxing, but I know this as a husband of 21 years. I believe every husband longs to be the champion of their wife's heart. And ladies, you have the power. You have the power to make a weak man stronger and to make him feel like a champion. You have that power. 
Guys, you seem pretty relaxed at this point. It's our turn, okay? So it seems like in this story, you, you look at what happens and you have to wonder for poor Jezebel, is the reason that she responds the way that she does the fact that her husband simply wasn't doing anything at home and it had been that way for a long period of time to the point that she finally just gave up on him and said, if anything's going to happen, I'm going to have to do it. See, guys, I want to be very clear this morning because I believe the Bible is very clear that we as the husbands have been given by God the role of leading our homes. And it's not optional. You know, it's not one of those things can say, well, you know, that's just not in me. That's not my personality. It's not the way God wired me up. No, it's not optional. The Bible's very clear that God has said to men, you're supposed to be the leader in your home. And I think there are three major ways, at least three, that God has said to men, this is the way I want you to lead your home. Here's the first one. I think God wants men to lead out as the provider. Now, that doesn't mean that your wife needs to be barefoot and pregnant at home all the time. It doesn't mean that she shouldn't be out working. Absolutely, the Bible's really clear in many stories that out working outside the home is absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with her being the financial contributor. In fact, there's nothing wrong with her being the bigger financial contributor in your home. It doesn't mean that your wife ought to always balance, that you should always balance the checkbook and not let your wife do that. If she's better at it, let her do it. You'll probably be better off for her. But here's what it does mean. It means, guys, that you ought to be the one who sets the financial tone and direction of your home. You ought to be the one that guards against your family being controlled by a pursuit of material things. You ought to be the one who guards against your family whenever possible against being upside down in debt. You ought to be the one who gives to your wife a sense of something that she longs for, a sense of financial stability. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be wealthy. It doesn't. It just means you have to be striving towards being stable. Here's another thing it ought, it ought to mean. It ought to mean that you lead the way in your family of teaching your family about putting God first in your finances. I think God wants you to lead in that way. Here's another one. I think God wants you to lead as the protector of your home. Now, that doesn't mean that if somebody breaks into your house that you ought to beat them to a pulp with every weapon you have in your house. I mean, you might do that too. But that's, that's not what we're talking about. You ought to be the one in your home that protects the heart and emotions of your wife. She ought to know that as long as she's married to you, that you will always love her. And that you will be faithful to her with your actions and with your mind and with your eyes. Being the protector of your home also is about being a man of God who stands in faith and prayer to protect his family against the temptations and the dangers of a sinful world that we live in. You're going to protect your family. Just one more. I think God calls you to be the pastor of your family. Now, don't check out on me. It doesn't mean you have to be some kind of theologian. It doesn't mean that you have to lead your family in two-hour daily devotions, okay? But it does mean, again, that you ought to be the one in your family that sets the spiritual tone and direction. Now that may be as simple as your, you make sure that every week your family is in church. That you don't let other things, sports and out of town guests and a whole list of things keep you away. That you say to our family, 
God comes first. And one of the ways that we're going to model that is we're going to make sure we're in church every week. It may mean that as the pastor of your family, you make sure that your children are plugged into KidPoint, that they're plugged into an environment where they can learn about God in a way that they can understand. I think that it means as the, the pastor of your family that you make sure that your teenagers are in torch and elements. That, it, that it's non-negotiable. It's not optional. It's not if they feel like it. That they're plugged into that because they need to be in an environment with other teens where they're being pointed to Jesus on a regular basis. I think it means that when you, when you travel, you take the lead and 99% of the time we're going to make sure we're still in church as we travel. We're going to find a place and we're going to go worship because God comes before everything else. I think it uh, means that you are the one who leads out in prayer in your family regularly. You make sure that prayer is a regular thing at your house, and you lead out in that. I think it means that you're the one that starts conversations about spiritual things at your house. You're leading in that way. But listen, guys, our, our role of leading in the family is not about just making money or providing a house or raising star athletes. That is an insult to the calling of God in our lives. God's calling in our lives is for something that is much, much higher than that. God has called you to lead out in pointing your wife and the next generation to serve God. And guys, I want to tell you this morning, it is time that we, you step up and you lead. And you do it. It's my best coach impression, okay? Not a very good one, but that's why I'm this. Now let me tell you the rest of the story because I think it drives home this point. So Jezebel cooks up this scheme to, um, to make sure that, that uh, Ahab gets the vineyard. And so her scheme basically is she uses Ahab's seal and she sends this letter to look like it's from him to the local officials in the city where Naboth lives. And uh, they, they create this scheme where they get a couple of guys to falsely accuse Naboth of something and then they're going to kill him. And that's exactly what happens. He's, he's stoned because they, they cook this scheme. And then she goes to to Ahab, and she says, guess what? Naboth's dead. You can have the vineyard now. And he's excited. He takes control of it. And here, then I want you to listen to what happens in verse 17. It says, then the word came to Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah is a prophet that God uses to, to share what God wants to say to people. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Disgusting, right? Now, let me ask you a question here. Technically, who instituted the murder of Naboth? Jezebel. Who does God hold responsible for the murder? Ahab. Guys, I think this, this drives home a point that I believe is repeated in the New Testament. God takes very seriously our role as leaders, and God, guys, is going to hold us accountable for the condition of our family. Not our wives, us. And I think we have to take that seriously. Now let me wrap you up this way on a, a, a positive note. That's a positive note, too. One you'll feel better about, okay? Genesis chapter 2, God is describing the relationship between husband and wife, and he uses these words in Genesis 2.18. He says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. You see, 
the text here is a bit uh, complicated, and I don't have time to get into the details, but let me just try to illustrate it this way. God created man and woman. And we would all immediately identify we are very different, aren't we? Men and women. And uh, we're really like two puzzle pieces. We have each been given some specific roles that we are supposed to, to carry out. And, and what one side of the puzzle is able and supposed to do, the other side of the puzzle isn't really designed to do. But when we live out the roles that God has given us as man and woman, as husband and wife, we fit together. We complete the picture. But here's what we have a tendency to do. Here's what our culture invites us to do. We think that we can, we can redesign our roles. That we can say, well, that's not really what I want to do, and I want to have this role, and, and we, can, we just kind of redesign, redevelop, redecide, well, this is how it's going to work in our family, and we don't pay attention to how God created us. You know what happens when we try to do it our way and we don't live out the roles according to the way God designed them? Yeah, we no longer fit together. And there are some big holes that are left. But when we understand and accept and live out the roles that God has given us as man and woman, then we fit together. And you know what happens? It creates a beautiful picture the way God designed it. I'll get a lot of brownie points for that. <laughs>